as you are, please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. And a reminder for the older kids uh, of reading and writing age, on the back racks in the back row there, there's some red folders that have fill-in-the-blank sermon outlines, word searches, things like that, to help follow along with what's being preached from the Word of God this morning from Zechariah chapter 3. If you're struggling to find Zechariah, if you're seeing words you can pronounce, you're probably in the New Testament, so just kind of hang a left a few pages until you uh, get to the second to last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah, who we'll be preaching through for the next uh, two months. Last week, we did an overview of the first six chapters. I tried to preach through chapter, from chapter 1 through chapter 6, um, and we just finished that up yesterday evening, I think, didn't we? No. Um, but astute listeners noticed that I in- entirely skipped chapter 3 last week. And that was because I was saving it for this morning, because chapter 3 deserves its own attention. So this morning I'll be reading Zechariah chapter 3, the entire chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua. On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. There seems to be, or maybe was, I don't know if there still is, but there was in my home for a time at least, a cultural fascination with home renovation shows. You know what I'm talking about, the shows where you, you at the beginning of the show, you see this dilapidated uh, money pit, this wreck, this house that nobody could possibly live in. And by the end of the show, this big reveal, it's, it's beautiful, it's fancy, it's modern, it's updated, it's, it's livable. You want to live there. I want to live there. My wife wants to live there. And at some point in the show, at the, near the beginning usually, they, they unveil the plan with fancy computer graphics and, and pictures and imagery. They, they show you how they're going to take this house from unlivable to desirable to live in. And I I don't know about you, but as I've watched those shows, usually when that plan comes out and they're showing you all the work they're going to put into it and and this beautiful plan they have, I've at times thought, man, wouldn't it be neat if there was a plan like that for me? You know, somebody says, look, here's where you are now. 
here's what you're going to be. And here's how we're going to get you there. Well, the good news is that God's Word gives us just that. God does not just hand us salvation and then send us off on our merry way. Like, you know, you've rescued a wild animal and you just send it off. Go, be free. Living free and in the wild. Wildcrats fans know what I'm talking about. No, as the classic evangelistic tract puts it, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. God has a plan for His people. He finds us broken, sinful, a mess, an unlivable wretch. And that plan transforms us. He doesn't just tidy it up. He doesn't just sweep the floors and smack on a new paint job and call it a day. No, He transforms us into something greater. God equips us to fulfill our original purpose. The purpose that He has for us to reflect Him as beings made in His image, and our purpose to serve Him. In this vision of Zechariah, the prophet is speaking to God's people as they are returning from decades, decades in exile, in punishment for their sin. Because the nation of Israel had sinned, God had wiped out their nation, leveled the city of Jerusalem, and sent His people far away into exile into Babylon. And now, according to His promise, after 70 years, they're beginning to return. And Zechariah is preaching to the people who are returning to Israel, to Jerusalem, needing to rebuild, rebuild their homes, rebuild their walls, rebuild the temple. And they're still stinging with the rebuke of exile. Have we forever been cast off? from service to God? Have we been disqualified because of how far we have fallen? And the vision that God gives is to show, no, far from it. No, God has a plan for His people. And that plan applies to us today in this vision that God gives Zechariah. We see that God, through Jesus, moves His people from sin to service. God has a plan to move His people from sin to service. But where that plan begins, we see in Zechariah 3, is recognizing that we are rightly condemned. The scene begins in a courtroom of sorts. Verse 1, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Uh, Joshua, the high priest. That's a key detail. Because the Scripture is clear what the role of a priest is. In Hebrews 5, it's made very clear for us, uh, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The priest represents the people. Once a year, the priest would go into the holiest place to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And and the priest would would wear an ephod, an ornamental device that had written on it the names of the 12 tribes of Israel so that he would literally be carrying the names of God's people in as he would go into the presence of the Lord because the priest represents all of the people. So as we see Joshua, this is not about Joshua the high priest being condemned and being filthy. This is about all God's people being rightly condemned for their sin. And so we see Joshua, who is the people of God, being accused by Satan. And it's so interesting to me that God does not stop Satan and and say, no, you're wrong. They're not guilty. Stop accusing them. Stop accusing them because they've done nothing wrong. They're innocent. No, He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't stop Satan because Satan is right. They're guilty. Look at verse 3. Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. What Satan said was true. They deserved to be condemned. The filthy garments represent sin and impurity. As we see later, when the filthy garments are taken away, the angel says, look, I've taken your iniquity away, your sin away. And it's all the worse because the priest is called to be pure. There were elaborate ceremonies of washing and cleansing of the body and the garments and everything before the priest could enter into the presence of God to serve him and represent the people. And that's significant because God had not just called the Levites to be priests. He had not just called Joshua to be the priest. He had called all of his people to be priests. When he first established his covenant with them at Sinai, in Exodus 19, before giving the Ten Commandments, God says this to all of Israel, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just as the Levites were the priests among Israel, Israel was to be the priests among the nations. They were to represent God to the world. They were to offer prayers and sacrifices for the nations to God. They were to teach God's word to the nations. Israel was to be a nation of priests among the nations of the world. And the same is true for God's people today. Peter picks up this imagery in his first letter. In 1 Peter 2, he says to the church, you yourselves, you Christians, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I, we are the priests of God to the world. We take his word, representing God to the world and representing the world to God. So showing up filthy isn't just a matter of embarrassment or propriety or courtesy. It is disgraceful for the priest to show up filthy. He is unsuitable for his task. Intended to represent God, you're instead covered in filth. And we're not just talking about the obviously evil behavior that we would look at and condemn in anybody. Isaiah 64 the prophet laments that we have all become like one who is unclean and even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So the filth that covers Joshua, the filth that covers you and me, is not just uh, obnoxiously, rudely, illegal, evil stuff that we would all condemn. Even our righteousness, our attempts to do good, to be good moral people, are tainted. They're polluted by false motives. I want to do the right thing so people will think I'm better. They're tainted by pride. I am better because of how good I am. Our righteous deeds are tainted by a lack of balance. I'm righteous in these ways, but I don't keep a watch over my tongue. I'm not righteous in the way I talk to people on social media. I'm not righteous in these other ways. We're unbalanced. We are unrighteous. Our, our righteousness is polluted by inconsistency. Some days I am righteous. Other days, not so much. So even our greatest deeds are polluted. And our tendency is to justify ourselves, to make excuses, to look, to judge ourselves by our good days, not our bad days. But God says, no, you, you stand before me in filthy garments and you are rightly condemned. 
And that's why it's what is so beautiful about the response of God to Satan. Rather than saying, you stop it. You're wrong. He's not bad. No, instead, look at verse 2. The Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? That's an image we see in, in another prophet. Uh, the image of a brand uh, being plucked from the fire is to describe one who is under judgment. The fire is judgment. And, and God has reached into judgment and taken out one and said, I'm going to spare you from judgment. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He's chosen his people. And he says, I'm going to spare you from judgment. That's the basis of rejecting Satan's accusations. Not righteous moral behavior. Not goodness, but that God has said, I'm going to spare you from judgment. We see the same thing of believers in, in Jude, verses 22 and 23. The apostle says, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. Those who come to Christ are as brands plucked from the fire, spared from the judgment they deserve. As we sang earlier, in Psalm 130, if thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and our misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee? That's a rhetorical question. No one would stand before the Lord if he kept a record of our sins and, and judged us based on that. Or as we sang in other songs, not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak, wounded, sick and poor. You are rightly condemned. Responding to the gospel and seeking the blessing of God must always have a, as a starting point the recognition that we are rightly condemned. It doesn't matter your history, your pedigree, or your advanced degree. It doesn't matter your family, your fortune, your finances, your future, your doctrine, your devotion, or your dedication. You stand before God filthy, rightly condemned. And the only hope you have is not that you're good enough, not that God will look upon you and say, well, they eventually got their act together and got it right. Not that God will say, oh, no, the good deeds outweighed the bad, didn't they? Oh, their intentions were pure. No. The only thing that will silence the voice of the accuser is God saying, I have chosen to have mercy on this one and to pluck them out of the fire and spare them. He sees our filthy clothes. And he does something about it because we cannot. God's plan begins with us seeing that we are rightly condemned. The next step in God's plan is that we are graciously clothed. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. And to be honest, that's where many of our views of the gospel ends. Many of us, if you were to ask many in the church and many outside the church what it means uh, to be a Christian, what does God do? It means Jesus forgives my sins. Full stop, that's the end. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. I'm, I'm with you on that. But that's not all. The gospel has to be more than that. Imagine, okay, it's Mother's Day. Imagine mom calling some kids in from the backyard where they've been playing in the mud because it's Florida and it's summer, so there's mud. And one of them's got a bufa tote or whatever in his hand and God only knows what is oozing out of the pocket and, and says, time to come in for dinner. And they come in and they're covered head to toe with filth. 
And mother, being the gracious one that she is, says, Honey, go get ready for dinner. Get those dirty clothes off. And the child goes away. And I promise you, my son at some point, I'm sure, did this. Takes off the dirty clothes and comes to dinner as instructed. Naked! Dirty clothes gone, yes, but I'm not dressed for dinner. And mother being, let's say it was a good day, says, my darling child, please go to your room and put on some clothes and then come to dinner. Okay. We'll go with that reaction, won't we? That, that is what the gospel tells us. It's not just remove the filth. It's put on clean clothes. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Scripture is so clear again and again that it's not forgiveness that is required for you to be in the presence of the Lord. Forgiveness is not what God demands of you. Holiness is what God demands of you. Without holiness, Scripture says, no one will see the Lord. Forgiveness is necessary because none of us begin holy. But it's not enough to remove the filth. We need to wear clean clothes. As he says in verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. But he's also got to give righteousness. So look at what Zechariah sees in verses 4 and 5. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then I love this part because then Zechariah gets engaged. Said, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Okay, don't just give him clean clothes. Give him a clean turban. I'm going to talk about that in a minute because that's not just Zechariah being silly or overeager. There's significance there. So they, they did. They put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. There's more than our untrained modern Western eyes see there because... Josh was not just a dirty guy. He's a dirty, filthy priest. And the priest had to be clean. And the turban was not just a ball cap that he wore for fun or to signal his allegiance with a team. The turban was part of the priest's official garb. And there was an inscription engraved across the forehead of the turban which said, Holy to the Lord. So that all who looked upon the priest knew that this man was called had a special task, had a special purpose, and was declared to be holy. And so as, as Zechariah sees, he's, he's got these filthy clothes being taken off. He's like, don't just give him clean clothes. Give him a turban. Give him back the role that he's been called to. Make him once again holy to the Lord. In being reclothed, he's being outfitted for service once again. Now notice where those clean garments come from. They didn't take off his dirty clothes and say, now Joshua, you go back home and, and get your own clean clothes. No, they give him the clean garments. Because for the people of God, the, the theological term here is imputed righteousness, which means that the perfect life, the perfect record God demands of us has to be given to us. And what is given is not something we've done. It's what Christ has done for us. Great controversy has happened over the years over this idea of where our righteousness comes from. We see another picture of this in Revelation 19 at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. 
John sees this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The bride, the church, the people of Christ. How have they been made ready? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The good life you live. The righteousness that you live out, the living out the gospel together that we talk about here all the time is given to you by God. It doesn't come from you. It is a gift of God. I always thought that this only happened in movies until it happened to me one time years ago. Um, that There are restaurants where if it's a, uh, a restaurant where you have to wear a jacket and a tie and you show up improperly dressed, there are restaurants that will supply you with the jacket or tie or whatever you're missing so that you can be appropriately dressed. Now, the, the restaurant that this happened to me at, they had a sense of humor because the tie was like the tackiest, ugliest thing. It just declared to everybody, I didn't come prepared. But it's the same idea that if we are to show up in the presence of God unprepared, as we all would, He gives us what we need. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. Not by making you a better person, not by showing you what you have to do, but by actually counting Christ's obedience as yours. In Galatians 3.27, Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, everybody who believes in Christ and, and follows Him, have put on Christ. And that word, that phrase put on in Greek is literally clothed, to put on a garment. You've dressed yourself in Jesus. His righteousness is on you. So when God looks upon you, He sees Jesus and what Jesus has done. This is not just spiritual talk. This is not just high theology. This, this should, if it is scriptural and true, this should affect you daily. This should affect you in real, tangible ways. One example, self-image. I know many of us struggle feeling like we, we don't deserve to be loved. We don't deserve to get a hearing in front of people. We certainly don't deserve God. But we can walk into a room and feel like, man, I don't deserve the friendship of the people in this room. Or we feel guilty that if God only knew or if they only knew what I've done, it would be clear how, how unqualified I am to be in this church, to do anything for God, to be in this marriage, to be in this friendship. And the voice of the accuser is just on our right, like he was on the right of Joshua, just shouting those accusations. And what was the Lord's response? It wasn't, oh no, you're wrong. Think how good you are. Think of the good things you've done. Think of how worthy you are. No, the response of the Lord was, I have chosen this one. I have spared them from judgment. Satan, you shut your mouth. That is the answer we need. That whatever righteousness we feel we lack is given in Christ. Or maybe you, you have the other struggle, which is you walk in the room thinking, of course people want to be my friend. Who wouldn't? People want to hear from me. They should hear from me. My words are more important because I am better. I live better than those horrible people. Have you seen their, have you seen their social media? Do you know how sinful they are? And to that, the Word of God says, no, 
Whatever you have has been given to you. Therefore, there is no boasting. There is no looking down on others. As the saying goes, there's equal footing at the foot of the cross. And so the the gift of God's righteousness that you are graciously clothed builds up the one who feels unworthy and it humbles the one who feels worthy until all that is left is the grace of God to us. But that's not the last thing that happens in this passage. Because it's not just about taking that dirty house and slapping on a new paint job and sweeping up the floors and giving maybe some new lighting fixtures. It is about turning it into something that it was intended to be, something amazing, something beautiful. And so, people of God, we are rightly condemned. We are graciously clothed. But lastly, we see that we are earnestly called. Earnestly. That word means sincerely. Not fooling around, not joking, not something to make light of. Deeply, truly called by God to something. Verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So he's speaking to Joshua, to the priests who are with him, and to all of God's people who, who do not deserve to be serving in the temple of the Lord, do not deserve to be doing what he's called them to do. And he says, but if you keep my ways and walk in my ways, you will have the right of being in my temple and serving me and doing what you were created to do. God saved you for a purpose, not just to fill up empty spaces in heaven, but to serve him and to represent him, to be a light in the darkness. We we looked earlier at how Peter picked up that idea of being a priesthood. Well, he does it again a few verses later. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Having been saved, that's your commission, that's your calling, that's your purpose, that's what you're made for, to declare the excellencies of God. And to do that, you're called to walk in his ways and to keep his charge. Let's look at that verse 7 again. If you will walk in my ways, then I will give you these blessings. Now, that that sounds an awful lot like a conditional. And some of you are hearing that thinking, well, that doesn't sound very much like the gospel. That sounds like God's going to reward my good works, which goes against everything you just said in your second point, Pastor. So go back and do your homework. But others of you are thinking, well, yeah, that's what I would expect in the church, that if I obey, God gives me a reward, and I have to follow God's rules or He won't be happy with me. What I want to see is in the context of how this plays out, it is the gracious gift of God that makes our obedience possible. We can't fulfill that calling except by what He's already given What preceded this call to walk obediently and to keep the statutes? It was the giving of clean garments. It was not just the removing of sin, but the giving of righteousness. So the very thing in verse 6 and 7 that they're called to do, the previous verse, we saw they were just given as a gift. It's been a week or two since I've taken you to Ezekiel 36. So I'm going to go back to it again. It's been too long. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 27, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I have to say, we, we bring this up a lot here. Because this is an important issue for us to understand how God's gracious salvation and our obedience work together. Through the prophet, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. 
make you, cause you to be careful to obey my rules. I want you to tune in. If you've tuned out or zoned out or your mind's wandering or you're reading the rest of Ezekiel 36, uh, hold on, because once you get to 37, you're not going to want to stop. Tune in for just a second. The grace of God does not exclude our obedience and our good works. In fact, the grace of God enables our obedience and our good works. Rather than exclude our good works, God's grace enables our good works, which made me think, of course, of the movie The Matrix. Some of you have seen, I now understand it's considered a classic movie. That blows my mind. Uh, All you need to know is that there's this character, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, who uh, in this dystopian future where computers have taken over the world and machines have taken over the world, uh, humans have an implant, uh, a port in the back of their head that lets you kind of plug in a computer. And one of the things they can do is download knowledge into you. And you can suddenly like know all of you know, medieval history just by a quick download. And there's a scene in the movie where Neo, who's being called upon to fight against the machines in this great revolution, they tell him, Neo, we're going we're gonna to have to teach you kung fu. You know, Neo's just been like a, a desk jockey his whole life. He doesn't have any athletic skills. He's just kind of like your computer nerd guy. And they, they plug this port into the back of his head, and his eyes go crazy blinky for a few seconds, and then he goes, I know Kung Fu. Okay. And that's, that's kind of what has happened. You were called to do something, but God has put in you His grace that makes you able to do what you're supposed to do. Now, Neo still has to get out there and actually kick, and you don't, you don't want to see me act that out. He's actually got to kick and chop and actually fight these machines or whatever, but the ability to do it was given to him. He would not be able to fulfill his task or his calling if it had not been graciously provided for him. God does the same thing for you and I, Christian, for you and me. Paul struggles with this in 2 Corinthians 2. He's, he's thinking about the, the ministry that we have. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And God, through us, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one group, we're the fragrance of of death to death. But to the other group, we're the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient to such things? Who can do that? Who deserves that? Who's who's qualified to do that? Nobody. But then Paul goes on a few verses later and says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. So let me ask you, brothers, sisters, what is it that you live for? What is your purpose? Is it the grand endeavor of your life, is it, is, it, um, is it comfort? Is it success? Is it to make a name for yourself? Is it politics? Is it personal pleasure? Is it raising and having a good family and a good legacy? Making a name for yourself in some field? You who have been rightly condemned and graciously clothed are now earnestly called to something far better than all that. But it's a calling that comes with an equipping. Whatever God calls you to do, He gives you everything you need to do it. And that leaves you without excuse. But it also leaves you with great encouragement that whatever task the Lord has called you to, 
He has already graciously clothed you and equipped you to do it. I want to conclude by looking at um, an important figure in this chapter that we haven't looked at yet. Somebody named Branch. Chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. He says, Joshua, you and these other priests with you are a sign, a sign that points to something. The priesthood in Israel was meant to point to something greater, a greater priest, Jesus, who would represent us before God. And Zechariah, with the word of the Lord, says that this great priest we're pointing to is called Branch. And then for two more chapters, it doesn't say anything about that until we get to the end of chapter 6 and see what happens. God tells Zechariah to take silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now pause there for a second because the priests in Israel were all from the tribe of Levi. And the kings in Israel were all from the tribes of Judah. You could not have ever a priest wearing a crown because they, they came from different tribes. It didn't mix. And God shows Zechariah a symbolic act, take a crown, put it on the priest. And then this is what you say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is Branch, the great priest that we're looking forward to who makes all this possible, who will take away the iniquity in a single day, who will lead us to dwell under our own vine and fig tree. He's going to be a priest and a king. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. He will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on a throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. The branch is someone who is impossibly both priest and king, representing the people and ruling and defending the people. Jesus, whose name in Hebrew was Joshua, was the kingly priest, the priestly king, perfectly representing God's people, per perfectly ruling, leading, and defending God pe God's people. The priest who was and made the perfect sacrifice in order that we who are rightly condemned might be graciously clothed in order to be earnestly called to follow him. Through the branch, through Jesus, the priest who wears the crown, God takes us from sin to service. Confident that whatever God requires of us, whatever He calls us to do, He has already given us all we need to do it. In Jesus, He's given us the obedience He requires. It's now our job to live out what He's already given. The Lord's table reminds us of that. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.